Welcome to Rumsey Connections. My name is Meredith Gaskins, and I'm joined today by Alex Lutz, the VP of Marketing at Rumsey, as well as Dr. Lauren Harris, who is the Chair of Surgery at Rumsey, and Dan Ryan, the Advertising Director at the Staten Island Advance. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Through Rumsey Connections, you will meet the fantastic doctors, nurses, and medical professionals that make our hospital thrive. We'll also provide useful information about your own health, explore the latest medical news, and hopefully get you answers to some of your own health-related questions. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Dr. Lauren Harris, Chair of Department of Surgery at Richmond University Medical Center. Last episode, we talked about robotic surgical services that are performed at Rumsey. In this episode, we'll shift our focus a little to talk about Rumsey's surgical department and the various services that are offered. So, Dr. Harris, can you tell us a little bit how the field of surgery changed since you performed your first procedure? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since I, um, my first procedure as an attending surgeon was in 1996, uh, probably September of 1996. And uh, since that time, uh, I think things have changed dramatically, not only from the surgical standpoint, but from the anesthetic standpoint, the nursing standpoint. Uh, what um, uh, what uh, what instruments we have, uh, uh, critical care uh, of patients postoperatively. So you know, surgery doesn't happen in a vacuum, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the people who help us in the operating room—the nurses, the anesthesiologists, the circulators—all those people are critical uh, to the to the actual outcome uh, of the operation. It's very similar to the military. For every every guy carrying a gun, there are five people behind him who did all of the other things, you know, the people who got the food services, the people who uh, set up the tents for the, for the camp, all those things are critical mm -hmm. to getting the, the actual outcomes you want. So I would say, you know, uh, things have changed dramatically uh, in the, those 25 years uh, or more. Uh, but uh, I would say to me, the biggest uh, change was the advent and acceptance of minimally invasive techniques really across the board uh, for, for surgery, not just in my field, mm -hmm. but in all fields of surgery. So, doctor, how, how long does an average procedure take? Well, it all depends on what the procedure is. I, you know, I would say that the, and it all depends on uh, what you find when you get there. Uh, you know, we have a lot of preoperative imaging for a lot of different types of operations. And as much as I love to look at CAT scans and you think you can tell what's in what's going on in there, until you actually are looking at the structures, you don't really know what you're up against. And uh, that's, you know, that's the kind of the mystery of surgery in, in the sense that uh, everything can look really good on the CAT scans. And then when you get there, everything's not so good. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, these these operations you're talking about robotic operations yes. yeah that uh, varies i mean robotic um cholecystectomies are one thing they probably uh, i've never done one but my guess is they probably take an hour um for me a uh, robotic uh lobectomy meaning it, it, that's an anatomic resection of a part of the lung generally takes me about anywhere between 90 and 120 minutes but uh, a hiatal hernia might take me an hour and a half so it all depends on what operation you're doing. But it's significantly less from when you were growing up through the system. Yeah, it, it's significantly less because the actual doing a, of the the actual 
performance of the lobectomy, probably about the same open as it was robotic, but it's the opening and closing part. Uh, for me to close during robot case, I put in a, a tube to, to, to suck the lung back up, and then I take my instruments out. We have uh, four, four small incisions to close. Takes 15 minutes. Uh, when you have a thoracotomy, a thoracotomy can take, you know, take you half an hour or 40 minutes to close. So that there's a lot, and, and getting the patient rolled over and extubated is more of a uh, more of an operation or more of a procedure when patients had a thoracotomy than when they've just had robotics. So you know it does speed speed things up, but yeah, uh, it can vary depending on what you, what the pathology is. And you said earlier that this this is this field is is a practice. How do yeah. how do you stay at the top of the game? Do you do you weekly, daily? You're looking through publications. You're looking through. Yeah. How do you stay at the forefront of of your practice? Well, there there is a prolific literature out there. I mean, you know, there are uh, journals published. And obviously online, I get I get articles almost every day online uh, that I read, and um, you can set these things up online where it'll notify you if, if, if a certain topic comes up that's been published. Mm-hmm. So you, you stay on top of the literature, you read, and uh, like I said before, you know, review the anatomy, stay on your game. It's it's I guess in a way it's kind of like. You know the professionals before they play a football game. You know they're looking at they're looking at films the week before. Mm-hmm. That's it's pretty much the same thing. Well, that was my, my yeah. question. You like if so? Let's say you know you're performing surgery tomorrow. What yeah. what I walk am. us through your pro? Yeah. <laughs> what what is your game day preparation before you even set foot in that operating room? Well, I think the the best thing for me anyway that is I review the the patient's chart and go over their their medications their their past history anything in their history that might affect what I'm doing or the post-operative uh, plan in terms of medications or other things that I might have to provide for them. Uh, obviously, you look at all the, the, the images that you have, and it usually is in the form of a CAT scan or a PET scan. Um, uh, or if you're doing a foregut case like a, a hiatal hernia, they may have had a barium swallow. Obviously, you want to look at that. So review all the images, uh, review the, the chart, and then, like I said before, I always review anatomy uh, just to make sure that, okay, I'm doing this lobectomy. Let's look at the anatomy of that of that lobectomy. Mm-hmm. And I may uh, go to YouTube and watch one or two. I have I have a set of videos that I like mm-hmm. um, from people who are very experienced and have done thousands of these types of cases. Here's a here's a great little trick to use, mm-hmm. and it's amazing that. You, I watch them all the time, and every time I watch them, you learn something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how critical in, in your preparation is actually the interaction with the patient before they actually go yeah. in and they see you, they hear because they're yeah. probably they're nervous. They're, they're always nervous, nervous. yep. And, and I don't blame them. And mm-hmm. many of them are, you know, just imagine yourself going under the knife, you know, you're going to go to sleep, and, you know, these are potentially life-threatening procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have mortalities associated with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you do, what I do is I sit down with the patient and the family, explain to them exactly what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, how many incisions I'm planning on making. And I always make sure that they understand that anytime you start out minimally invasive, 
there's always a chance you may have to convert to what's called an open operation. Mm -hmm. And for robotics, the most common reason for converting, people would say, oh, because you get into bleeding. That's not the most common. It is a cause, mm -hmm. of course, but it's not the most common. The most common is that you, you, you reach a point where you just can't, you're, you're trying to dissect something out and you just can't do it. Mm -hmm. So it's failure, what we call failure to progress. And once you fail to progress for a certain period of time, there's no sense in, you know, making a career of it. Mm -hmm. So you wind up opening. And, uh, you know, you tell them that there is, according to the literature, somewhere around 2 or 3% chance of converting to an open operation. Mm -hmm. So this way, everybody understands, everybody knows what the risks and the benefits are. Mm -hmm. And um, usually that's the best way to go. And uh, no one's ever going to feel 100% comfortable going to the operating room, but uh, you can make them feel as comfortable as possible and understand that this is the right thing to do for, for the disease that you have. Mm -hmm. And uh, they understand. Mm -hmm. Jumping uh, into the actual yeah. procedure day, what would you say that your mindset is and how do you stay focused, especially if it's a, a lengthy procedure? Well, you mean in the operating room? Yeah. For some reason, I, I just become very focused when I'm in the operating room. I know what the next steps are. And um, once, I, once I start the operation, uh, well, first thing is I, I, don't put my, I don't take my phone into the operating room because that would be horrible. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, everybody stays focused. I make sure that the team stays focused. Uh, they don't start talking about what they're doing tonight for dinner mm -hmm. because that's not what we're there for. And um, if the nurses want to put on some music, we were talking about that. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, there have been plenty of studies showing that uh, some surgeons actually do better when they put their music on. Mm -hmm. So there's it, when I trained, it was forbidden. You could not put music on in the operating because it was felt to be counterproductive. But most of the studies on that have shown that not to be true. So if the nurses want to put on some music, as long as it's you know in the background, mm -hmm. that's fine with me because I'm not going to hear it anyway. Mm -hmm. Once I start operating, uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody's going to, you know, break me out of it until we're done. Mm -hmm. In terms of the length of, of procedures, uh, I mean, you know, there are, there are procedures that are just that, you know, take days, like separating conjoined twins. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have teams that come in and out of the operating. That's not what we do mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, for standard cases that we do these are two three four hours sometimes depending on what you're doing and, and honestly you, you know when when the procedure's over you're like wait a minute that was four hours mm. you know so for the most part it it's okay you just make sure to empty your bladder before you go in <laughs> you're generally okay yeah and I, i've never never really had that where i had to run out of the operating room to do something yeah and i would never do that and when you're as a surgeon and you're you're working on something, what's that feeling when you know that what you've done has saved a life or positively affected that person's life for the future? Well, I can't tell you. That's that's why I became became a surgeon because uh, there's really nothing like it. And uh, I think that you know when when you have that connection with your patient and the patient, I have patients who come back to me and I have one lady who I operated on 10 years ago who still comes to see me mm -hmm. uh, and is cancer free and oh, it's, it's just such a, a nice, it, it kind of makes your whole day and uh, it's very, very gratifying. Mm -hmm. 
and it's something that makes all the hard work uh, uh, worth it. Yeah, that's what we're here for. I'd love to know how you yeah. got your start in medicine. <laughs> you know, how did it all start for you and when you were rotating your way through surgery, kind of what was that aha moment for you that you just knew that that was right for you? Well, I never actually even thought about being a surgeon when I was in uh, college. Uh, I wanted to go to medical school and um, my original thought was to become a neuro. I really wanted to do neurology. I really loved neuroscience. I thought it was really fascinating. And when I got to medical school, uh, I started going through, you know, the different uh, courses and so forth. And I changed my mind. I wanted to be a gastroenterologist, which I also find very fascinating. Uh, it w and I was in the Navy at that time. And each summer we would rotate to a different place. And between my second and third years uh, of medical school, uh, I went to uh, Pensacola. And in Pensacola, I had signed up for uh, a, a rotation at their hospital doing internal medicine. So I was really excited. When I got there, they told me that there were no there were no spots in the internal medicine rotation that I was going to have to do surgery. And uh, you know, you're in the Navy. It's not like you can say I'm not doing that. I'm going home. So it was you know I saluted and I said yes sir and I went I walked off to the surgery ward. Well, and I thought I was going to hate it, but it turns out that um, I really connected with these, uh, there were a bunch of general surgeons there, and I really connected with these guys. And it was very, very interesting, because within two weeks, I had bought the textbook, and I was reading it at night. I, I just loved it. And um, it, it's kind of like when you go through college, and you know, what are you going to do for your career? Mm -hmm. And you wind up taking a course in something, and you kind of connect with the professor. And you say, yeah, I could see myself doing this. And you kind of get really interested, and you dive into it. And that's what happened to me. I never looked back. So um, surgical training was, uh, I, I loved my surgical training. I trained at NYU in the, in the late, uh, yeah, I started my internship in 87. Yeah, I loved it there. It was uh, different than today in the sense that there were no limitation on, on work hours. And I worked a routine 100-hour week. And I loved it. I couldn't wait to get to the hospital. And we made rounds at 5 o'clock, and I would, in the morning, and I would get home at, you know, maybe 11 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night wow. on the days I didn't have to take call. Uh, I loved it. Uh, and uh, my wife and I lived a few blocks from the uh, hospital. She was uh, an internal medicine resident. Oh, okay. And uh, we bought a 700-square-foot uh, apartment that we still live in today. And we had two kids. And we sectioned off the bedroom for a little child room. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was great because I was never there, so it was really only three people living there. <laughs> and uh, you know, but we've uh, we've expanded it. We we bought the apartment on either side over the last twenty years, so it's much bigger. And my kids are grown now, so they're gone. Um, but uh, yeah, we, it was it was actually I would I would do my training over again. Heartbeat, I loved it. Well, you mentioned you served in the Navy, so first of all, thank yep. you for your service. Oh, thank you. How did your military career? prepare you for a career in the operating room? Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, I I joined the Navy. Uh, I, I applied for a scholarship mm -hmm. with the Navy uh, because I couldn't afford medical school. Uh, I had gotten into NYU, but I couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to train at Bellevue. I dreamt my whole life of training at Bellevue because that was the place, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the chairman of the department used to say the, the best place for a surgeon to train is on the battlefield, and about as close as you could get is, is it is Bellevue. 
So I always wanted to be there, and I couldn't afford it. And uh, I applied for a scholarship with the Navy, which I thankfully got. And uh, I loved being in the Navy. I thought it was really fantastic. It was very regimented. Uh, some people might not like that, but I, I did. Mm -hmm. I loved it. We, you know, I went to officer uh, basic basic training for officers. Had this six foot two drill instructor uh, <laughs> yelling at me from three inches away. But you know, once you got used to that kind of stuff, um, it, it it was great, and the Navy treated you very well, and um, it was really fantastic. In fact, they let me take time off for for training because. Most people had in my program had to train with the Navy, but the Navy didn't have thoracic training. Mm -hmm. So they let me stay where I was to do that and, and let me finish my service there. And, uh, and, and then I was discharged in 87. So as I started my internship, but it was great. And it, I think in many ways it helped in the sense that it gave you a sense of purpose and uh, the, the dedication, it, it kind of instilled in you the idea that you know this is this is what you have to do today. Just keep your eye on that and get it done. Mm. And uh, the never give up kind of attitude, because there are cases where you just have to, you know, patients not doing well, you have to take them back, or you, you know, you just never get tired. You you take care of that patient until everything's taken care of. I, I got a lot of that mm -hmm. uh, from my well from my father, but also from uh, from the Navy. So, Dr. Harris, you've you've shared with us how high stress your job and career can be. What do you do to decompress? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I don't really think of it as high stress. I, I just love what I do. There is some stress to it because, you know, it's you are dealing with people's lives. It sounds terrifying. So you, take it to, you have to take it very seriously. It can be terrifying, but uh, it, it's, it's got its rewards. But in terms of relaxing... Well, believe it or not, uh, I've been uh, I've been riding motorcycles for about 25 years, and I just uh, that's just my my thing. So, in fact, my wife I got my wife into it too, and she loves it even more than I do. That's great. Uh, so, uh, you know, on a week, oh, well, I, I actually have four. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, why well, have one? What <laughs> war? Uh, so they're they're all Harley Davidsons. I, I I do. I have I have an older one. I have a '72 shovel head, and anybody who knows what a shovel head is means that you need to know how to wrench. Uh, they're not very reliable. So I do all my own work, and uh, I just love that. It it, it gives you that um, sense of purpose. I I just love doing it, and my wife and I. In fact, we're going to Sturgis in, in August for the mm. fifth time, and we've made so many great friends. So it's very relaxing. So, you, you know, you work hard, but you should play hard, too. And I tell my residents all the time that, you know, you get done with your residency, and your residency is 24-7. That's all you do. You eat, drink, uh, you know, think about surgery 24-7. And then you become an attending, and all of a sudden you find yourself having free time and nothing to do with it. <laughs> It, you can get very depressed, and people can get very, you know, melancholy that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you have to find a hobby, something that you love to do that gives you that outlet. Mm -hmm. Because there is stress, and, and, and I didn't mean to down, downplay it. There is stress. Uh, and you have to find a way, you know, they, they talk about work-life balance. Mm -hmm. So you have to do that stuff. In fact, some days, you know, I ride my bike to work. So if, if the weather's nice, I'll go to the garage and 
get the bike and ride that to work. It's great. Yeah. Oh, it's very relaxing. <laughs> and my, I can't hear my cell phone on it. It's perfect. <laughs> You're off grid. Uh, I'd love to know, who were some of your mentors when you first started out as a surgeon? And maybe you can tell us some valuable lessons that you've learned throughout your career. Well, you know, I think, you know, I'd have to say, you know, the surgeons who trained me at NYU, uh, they were kind of old world. Uh, they they believe that the patient came first, and um, you know you had to dedicate yourself. If you if you operate on a patient, you own that patient forever. Mm-hmm. In fact, the uh, the the chairman of the de- the department was a gentleman by the name of Frank Spencer. He's one of the fathers of cardiac uh, and vascular surgery, actually. And uh, he he believed that once you operate on a patient, that it was your patient, and he would have patients come back. 10 years after he did their heart surgery with some complaint not even closely related to heart surgery mm-hmm. and he would admit them to his service wow. so he 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 walked the walk mm-hmm. so you know and and that was very inspiring to me and his way of his his approach toward patient care i thought was you just don't see that anymore in dedication. many places yeah very dedicated and he didn't take no for an answer mm-hmm. and uh, the residents no I, I'm like that too. Uh, well, we can't do that today. Well, why can't you do that today? You can do it today. Get it done. Mm-hmm. So that's, but that's the way you have to be because patients rely on you mm-hmm. uh, for your care. So Dr. Spencer and uh, the the gentleman who ran the cardiac training program was one of my you know, mentors. Yeah, <laughs> his name was Steve Colvin. He okay. and he he passed away on in an untimely fashion a few years after I I left. But he was an amazing surgeon, also very dedicated. So, uh, the gentleman who eventually became uh, chairman of the uh, uh, of the department there, a guy by the name of uh, Pactor, Leon Pactor, was also very much like that. And uh, many of the residents, we fashioned ourselves after these people, and and that was the whole idea. So that when we were done, we would go out and teach our residents and juniors to be that same way, because it's so important. Uh, because people trust you. Mm-hmm. They, they put their lives in your hands. And uh, they're the only ones taking the risk. So that's that was really important. So yeah. so tell us a little bit about the surgical department at Rumsey uh-huh. and the colleagues that you have in that department. Right. Well, I, I've tried to build a, a real quality department, and, and I'm actually uh, very proud uh, of the guys that, that are working for me. I have um, pretty much... Well, we're, we're working on some new recruits, but uh, I have some very, very skilled uh, and uh, experienced surgeons. My vice chairman is Alex Barkin. He's a, uh, a bariatric surgeon trained in minimally invasive techniques in bariatrics as well. He, he also does general surgery. He really has been a shot in the arm to our hospital. When he got to Rumsey, we were doing no bariatric surgery at that time. And we hired him with the idea of starting a bariatric program because, you know, that's that's something that's in desperate need here on Staten Island. And uh, that type of surgery definitely prolongs people's lives and makes their lives better. Mm-hmm. And uh, not, not just the surgery, but the whole metabolic uh, aspect of, of uh, being, you know, a, a metabolic medicine. Mm-hmm. And he, he's very well versed in all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And uh, he, he started doing the surgery, and we've since become a, a well-recognized center of excellence 
with his help. And um, yeah, he has a, a partner also, Mike Zamatis, who's a few years behind him, but uh, is up and coming, and he's he's actually does great work. Uh, one of the older surgeons, older meaning probably my age, uh, <laughs> Lance Jung is a uh, is also an excellent, outstanding general surgeon, and he's he's the guy who's doing the vast majority of our robotic general surgery. I mean, he's he's very busy, and he does uh, pretty much everything stem to stern. You know, he's one of the few guys I would say. Here's a true general surgeon. He does pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one vascular surgeon. We're looking for another one. Uh, Zin Lee is my vascular surgeon. He's also excellent, outstanding. In fact, I've been bragging about a recent case he did. He did a, a lady came in with a ruptured abdominal aneurysm, mm-hmm. and he did her minimally invasively or fluoroscopically and uh, put a stent in her, and she walked out of the hospital. Yeah. So, which is not that common mm-hmm. you know when i was training uh, ruptured aneurysms half of them died so i mean that's to me that was just amazing so i mean he's outstanding and he's he's a good guy he's, he's a I'll, I'll forgive him he's a marine but okay <laughs> um, but he's a he's a very good guy and uh, very well trained and uh we've added ear nose and throat uh dr chris lisi Mm-hmm. Uh, is is here. He's been with us for a few years, and he does not only pediatrics but adults as well. He's outstanding. In fact, we're recruiting to get him a partner mm-hmm. uh, to do more complicated head and neck tumor type surgery. So I'm looking to looking forward to building that aspect of our department. We have excellent uh, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we have neurosurgeons. Our neurosurgery department is growing in leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're now doing, uh, uh, we do neurointervention. We do a lot of different types of neurosurgery that when I first got here in 17, we weren't even doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a very exciting time to be at Rumsey. Uh, we, we, uh, we were going to talk about the, uh, uh, the new physical plant. Uh, the hospital uh, is spending upwards of $300 million, uh, and uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, I can see the new emergency room right outside of my office, and it's gorgeous. And they just opened that a few weeks ago, 35,000 square feet of really uh, state-of-the-art space, four new trauma bays, which are just beautiful. You can almost do surgery. Uh, you probably could do surgery down there. Mm-hmm. And the on the second floor, part of the reason I actually came back in 17 uh, was <laughs> that they promised that they were going to build the 10 new operating rooms. Mm -hmm. And not only operating rooms, but there's a recovery area. There's a new uh, lounge suite. It's it's just beautiful on the second floor of the emergency room. Not quite finished yet. I mean, probably going to open fall, late summer, early fall, but it's going to be fantastic. I'm hoping to have a second robot parked in there at, at that time, mm-hmm. I'm working on that. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Uh, but uh, yeah, we need, you know, we're, we've done, we're, we're doing almost 450 robotic cases on one robot. And uh, it's very hard to get robot time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I'm, you know, I really think that, you know, <laughs> administrators and surgeons think very differently. Administrators, you know, want you to show that you have the volume before they spend the money. And surgeons are exact opposite. So, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in the field of dreams. And I, and I think that if you build it, 
they'll come. Mm-hmm. And uh, the great thing about Staten Islanders is they want to stay on Staten Island for their care. And they believe in places like Rumsey to give them top flight care. And, 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 and I think that we're, we're, on, we're certainly doing that. And I think that if we add a second robot, I, pretty soon you won't be able to get on that one either. Mm-hmm. So the, the, uh, the volume will come. You just have to build the program. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, it's wonderful that we're able to offer all of these services and service Staten Island without people having to go to the city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We'd like to thank you again uh, for you. joining us today and for all that you do to keep us safe and healthy. Mm-hmm. I appreciate um, it. There are highly skilled, experienced medical professionals ready to serve you at Richmond University Medical Center's Surgical Department. To learn more about our service, please call 718-818-2420 or visit our website at rumseysi.org. That about does it for this episode of Rumsey Connections. Thanks for joining us. I'm Meredith Gaskins.